let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you for the gift of this time together. We thank you for the gift of this wonderful book, Mere Christianity. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put aside the concerns and cares of the day and that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you might desire to teach us through the wisdom of C.S. Lewis that is drawn from your holy scriptures. Lord, we offer this time to you and pray your blessing on it and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, um, as usual, uh, we are going to start with our scripture verse, uh, which continues to be one that uh, I find to be a great blessing. Uh, I hope you will meditate some of this verse during the week because there's so much there, but I would encourage you to say this with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellent excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And this passage is one that I think is so relevant to us because it makes so clear that everything that we need, everything that we could want, everything that is important is found actually in Jesus himself. And that when we look for fulfillment, when we look for joy, when we look for anything, uh, that we believe we need that is outside of Christ, we are looking in the wrong place. Like the old song says, looking for love in all the wrong places. So uh, Christ is the answer for that. So again, I want to just say a word of welcome to folks that are new, either on the Zoom or joining us via YouTube or the podcast. Um, we're delighted to have new folks joining each time. And just a word about how to approach this, and this may be true for some of y'all who've been around for a while as well, that you may switch from one category to another from time to time, but I'm happy to have you at whatever level you want to be. If you're on the beach, you can just show up when you feel like it, do whatever you like, listen to whatever seems to grab your attention, but not be overly concerned or feeling like you need to read or dive deeper on anything. If that's just fine, you can bask in the sunshine and enjoy that, and that is all great. Or you can snorkel, you can go deeper on the things that you find interesting, but stay on the surface with others. Or you can scuba dive. Uh, if you are a scuba diver, last week, um, I recommended two excellent books, Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage and um, Sheldon Van Auken's The Severe Mercy. That's some real scuba diving there, but I promise you will see wonderful things uh, if you take that journey. And just a reminder too, if you're not on my email list, please Google St. Phillips Church Charleston and send me an email so we can get you signed up for that. That will give you all the resources each week, plus a summary if you happen to miss. Um, and also just a word about how to read this book. Y'all have heard me say this many times. The first time I read this book, I hated it because I tried reading it all in one sitting and it made me feel like my head was going to burst, uh, which was not a pleasant feeling. Uh, and it's so important to remember that when Lewis did these, they were weekly broadcast. And there was a lot in each talk 
and it was designed to give you enough to chew on for an entire week. So I would commend that approach to you. I would commend reading out loud one chapter at a time. That will be a blessing to you. So I also uh, want to let you know that I, I am at the process of coming up with a solution for how hard it is to hear the music each week. And so tonight it's still gonna be hard, but next week, God willing, um, you're gonna be able to hear it better. So um, I'm gonna go ahead and try with tonight's and you can turn your volume up and see if you can uh, figure out what this is. So um, this is yet another uh, piece that is uh, something that is uh, rich in its associations. And if I can get it to pull up here, we will be in business. So let's just see if I can get it to come up. Uh, no, that one is not liking it. So let's try here. Here we go. So listen and see if you can hear what this is saying. All right, it just stopped. So let me try again. This is one of those technical difficulties nights. Here we go. Okay, Elizabeth Scott gets the prize. Even with the technical difficulties, she got it. So it is uh, a wonderful piece that I've talked about before uh, that is a text by John Donne, the great metaphysical poet who was also the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in the 17th century. And it is a text that is all about sinfulness and this whole idea that we are sinners and God has so many things for which to forgive us. And the piece is entitled, Wilt Thou Forgive? And one of the beautiful things about it is it shows how deeply aware John Donne was of his own sinfulness and how much God needed to forgive him, how many things were on the slate that needed to be wiped clean. And that's a point we're going to come back to later on. So good job, Elizabeth, on getting that right. I'll send you the link. I would encourage you to listen. It's a beautiful recording by Harry Christopher and the 16. Uh, just lovely. So a quick review of context. It's still England in wartime. Uh, the Germans are bombing England. Lewis is going in through the bombs to London to record these broadcasts. And as we've said before, he started off in book one with just what was observable from the outside world about right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. And that section got a lot of attention and made people 
really start thinking about who are we? How did we come to be here? Why does it all matter? And in that book, Lewis talked a lot in that first book about the law of human nature, this strange idea that only humans have of a way that we should behave and that we find ourselves really unable to. And so he went through that in some detail and in book two moved on to what Christians believe. And I always like to pause here and just say what an amazing thing it is that the BBC wanted someone to actually articulate on primetime air what Christians believe. That's almost impossible to get our heads around today. But in fact, um, Lewis did a great job of condensing the entire Christian faith into a short series of points. And he said one of the things that opened the door for him to the Christian faith was understanding that there was this whole idea of just and unjust and being unable to figure out how absent God we would ever have been able to come up with an idea of just and unjust. And he has this great image of the invasion that the world is enemy occupied territory, Christianity, the story of how the rightful king is landed in disguise and is calling all of us to take part in a secret campaign of sabotage and that in church is where we get our instructions and learn about what's going on in that campaign. And that is why the enemy is so interested in keeping us away from church. Lewis talks about free will. He talks about the fact that there's no happiness outside of God. God can't give it to us apart from himself because it's not there. And then he comes up with the famous trilemma, um, liar, Lord, lunatic. And the idea of that is that Christ was not just a great moral teacher, that any man that said the sort of things that Jesus said and was merely a man was not a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. So he then talks about how Jesus came not just to teach, but also to die. This whole idea that we've just gone through in Holy Week about Jesus's atonement and the focus that the scriptures point on that is that it is all about Christ coming and dying the innocent for the guilty to make things right with God, to make relationship with him possible. And that through that, he plants in us what Lewis calls the Christ life. This is not just teaching or trying to follow Jesus, but it is a supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit within each believer. So one of the things that we talked about with book two is that it illustrates so well the great truth and paradox of the Christian faith. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is the idea that the Holy Spirit is active in our salvation, and that we are active in putting forth effort not to earn our salvation, but to try to follow and to imitate Jesus. So the third book, the one that we're in now, this is perhaps even more astonishing as a topic for the BBC to ask, but they wanted talks on Christian behavior, how Christians should behave and why. 
And these talks were given on Sunday afternoons, and they're so unbelievably relevant for our culture today. So he starts off talking about the three parts of morality and that image that is still so much with us, um, the schoolboy who's asked what he thinks God is like. And he says, as far as I can make out, God is the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And that is one of the great lies from Satan who is trying to get us to, oh, look at that. I hope you're not seeing all that. My Adobe Flash player is suddenly going crazy here. Um, but the idea is that Satan is at work trying to get us to be all occupied with the wrong things. And when he does that, he causes all sorts of havoc because he makes out that everything that is oppressive and not fun and not joyful is what the kingdom of God is about. And of course, it's completely the opposite of that. And Lewis uses this great analogy about ships, um, ships that are sailing in formation, and it shows that as an aspect of the three parts of morality, fair play and harmony between individuals shown in each ship keeping the right position with respect to the others, tidying up or harmonizing the things inside each individual, that is each ship, making sure it's ship shape, if you will, um, that its rudder is working, that its sonar is working, and that it stays and is in correct operating order. And then thirdly, the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man was made for, or in other words, who owns the ship or what is the destination of the fleet. So Lewis says that this is so important because culture has lost touch with the fact that there's more than one part of morality. Culture thinks it's only about whether it hurts someone else. And we hear all the time today, it can't be wrong because it doesn't do anyone else any harm. And as Lewis says, what's the good of drawing up on paper rules for social behavior if we know that in fact our greed, cowardice, ill temper and self-conceit are going to prevent us from keeping them? All that thinking about societal improvement will be mere moonshine unless we realize that nothing but the courage and unselfishness of individuals is ever going to make any system work properly. You cannot make, good, make men good by law, and without good men, you cannot have a good society. And Lewis says, this is why what you believe about the universe, what your worldview is, makes such a profound difference. And some of the implications of that, Christians need to re-engage with the truth and beauty of God's law. We need to re-engage and understand how God's law, if we would live that way, if we would try to structure our lives under that teaching, would result in beauty and order and goodness. Um, of course, we will never keep it perfectly, but as a culture, we seem to have just given up. The second implication is how important it is to build bridges. We live in a culture that is more and more polarized, balkanized with people living in echo chambers. And we as Christians need to be about the ministry of reconciliation, not loving our neighbor and hating our enemy, but loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. So Lewis then goes on to talk about the cardinal virtues prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. 
and the whole idea that perseverance is key to virtues, that the more that you persevere in doing these actions, you eventually get a certain quality of character. And that quality of character is what we really mean when we talk about virtue. The next chapter, he talks about social morality. And one of the things he says is that Christian morality is not really anything new. It's very much what's expressed in the Old Testament. And he says, the second thing to get clear is Christianity is not a political program. It doesn't come with a political program. It is not associated with any particular political party or candidate or politician. And he says, the idea is that what really needs to happen is that individual Christians need to put their faith into practice and that a real Christian society will not arrive until we really want it as individuals. And that's not going to happen until we become truly Christian and fully Christian and live out, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Lewis puts it this way, I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself until I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. And so, as I warned you, we're driven on to something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters, for the longest way round is the shortest way home. In other words, that this real solution is for more and more people to be drawn into the kingdom of heaven. So the next chapter is on morality and psychoanalysis. And the basic summary of that is Jesus good, Freud bad. Um, Freud's worldview, as Lewis says, is antithetical to Christianity. His methods of psychoanalysis and counseling, those are valuable, but everything else that Freud says is coming from a framework that is completely atheistic and is something that will lead to despair and chaos. And Lewis talks a lot about the role of moral choice. And he says, part of what is so important is that each choice that we make is making a difference in our ultimate character and our ultimate destination. And he says, we can't judge others as Jesus told us not to, but part of the reason we can't is that we judge one another by external actions. God judges by moral choices. We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material, but God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. And as Lewis says, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And you are either making yourself more and more um, like Christ, or you are growing farther and farther away from Christ. And Lewis says that one of the marks that your character is growing in Christ is that you understand more and more clearly the evil that is still left in you, much like John Donne and that poem, Wilt Thou Forgive? On the other hand, a man who's getting worse becomes inured to it. He understands his badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right, that he's not a sinner, he has nothing to be forgiven for. And sanctification, of course, is not an awareness of how good and righteous we're becoming, but instead it is a growing sense of how sinful we really are so that we will constantly turn to and depend on Jesus Christ. 
So it's important for us to know what's wrong with the Freudian worldview. Question of God program is a huge help here. It's important for us to remember the freedom of self-forgetfulness, to shun judgment and pride, and to consider carefully the power of choice. The next chapter on sexual morality, that got a big flutter um, from the Brits in the 1940s because they didn't talk about these things publicly. Um, but Lewis defines biblical chastity. And he says, perhaps the most unpopular Christian virtues. And he says, there's no getting away from it. The old Christian rule, that is the one that is proclaimed consistently throughout scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and throughout the history of the church until the 20th century is either marriage between a man and a woman with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And Lewis is unapologetic about this. It was controversial in the 1940s, even more so now. Um, but he says he believes that the problem is not with the rule, but that our sexual instincts and our culture's obsession with sex have gotten out of control. And he goes on to talk about three reasons chastity is so difficult. He says there's a ton of wrong thinking in our culture, um, lies that surround us from the media. There's a sense of futility that why should you even bother to try because you won't succeed. But Lewis says this trying, picking yourself up and starting over again, trains us in habits of the soul that are more important even than chastity itself. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. And thirdly, he says suppression, choosing to suppress and resist a conscious desire that you know is wrong, that that's very healthy and it is not the same thing as repression. So Lewis is very clear on what the scriptures teach here and we as the church need to be that way as well. And last week we talked about Christian marriage amazing how just relevant this is. Uh, it makes me think again that I need to give this chapter to everyone when I'm doing premarital counseling. Uh, but he talks about the Christian understanding of marriage, the whole idea that the man and the woman are united as a single person when they become married, and that this is not a sentiment, but just a fact. And he talks about the problem of trying to isolate sex from marriage is that it makes the whole thing a joke, that there's not anything wrong with sexual pleasure, but isolating it and taking it out of the context of marriage is like the idea of trying to enjoy the pleasures of taste without swallowing or digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. So he talks about the fact that marriage is for life, um, that divorce, um, the modern view that it's just a readjustment of partners is to be strongly discouraged by the church. He talks about the idea of justice and promise keeping and chastity and perjury. And then he has a great section about feelings. This is the disease of our culture. Um, you might remember that awful Morris Albert song from the seventies, feelings, nothing more than feelings. I'm not gonna sing it, but it's a dreadful song. And there are all sorts of them hooked on a feeling. You've lost that loving feeling. And you even see couples that write vows that say, I promise to be true to you as long as I feel love for you. Well, that's ridiculous. And Lewis comes out and says that, of course, Christian marriage is about commitment. 
It is not about feelings, that feelings are fleeting and that the problem with setting them up as the God of your marriage is that you will surely find that those feelings come to an end. He says, if they, if they lived happily ever after is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever could be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. And he says, the problem is that our ideas about feeling and love have nothing to do with the biblical understanding of what it means to love. That love is an act of will, not just a feeling. It's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by grace. And this is one of the things that distinguishes Christian love from everything else. And then he goes on and demolishes the idea of the perfect partner that is just rife in our culture. If you don't believe this, watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. The idea that there is some perfect person out there. And if you only meet the right person who's your soulmate, you will be forever happy. They will meet all your needs and you will live on the beach drinking margaritas for the rest of your life and it'll just be great. But the problem with that is it's not true. Um, no other person can meet all of your needs. The only person who can fulfill that God-shaped vacuum in you is Jesus. And the problem is that when you put that pressure on another person, they can't live up to it. And then you see people trading in partner after partner after partner. So he says that's essentially his thrill-seeking. He then goes on to talk about Christian versus civil marriage, that they're not the same thing and that about the idea of headship, but the idea of mutual submission in marriage. So there's a lot of countercultural wisdom there, um, all summarized in the email. So that brings us to tonight's chapter about forgiveness. And again, this is hugely important in our cultural moment. So Lewis starts off by saying how unpopular this is. And he says, in a previous chapter, I said chastity was the most unpopular of the Christian virtues, but I'm not now sure that I was right. I believe the one I have to talk of today is even more unpopular, the Christian rule of love thy neighbor as thyself, because in Christian morals, thy neighbor includes thy enemy. And thus we come up against this terrible duty of forgiving our enemies. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until he or she has something really to forgive as we had during the war. And then to mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. It's not that people think this is too high and difficult a virtue, it's they think it's hateful and contemptible. That sort of talk makes me sick, they say. And half of you already wanna ask me, I wonder how you'd feel about forgiving the Gestapo if you were a Pole or a Jew. Lewis says, so do I, I wonder very much, just as when Christianity tells me I must not deny my religion even to save myself from death by torture. I wonder very much what I should do when it came to the point. I'm not trying to tell you in this book what I could do. I can do precious little. I'm telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. So the requirement of forgiveness. And there, right in the middle of Christianity, right in the middle of the Lord's prayer, the most important prayer Jesus gave us, I find forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. There is no slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. 
It is made perfectly clear that if we do not forgive, we shall not be forgiven. There are no two ways about it. What are we to do? It's going to be hard enough anyway, but I think there are two things we can do to make it easier. When you start mathematics, you do not begin with calculus. You begin with simple addition. In the same way, if we really want, but all depends on really wanting, to learn how to forgive, perhaps we'd better start with something easier than the Gestapo. One might start with forgiving one's husband or wife or parents or children for something they've done or said in the last week. That will probably keep us busy for the moment. And secondly, we might try to understand exactly what loving your neighbor as yourself means. I have to love him or her as I love myself. So then Lewis gives a little excursion about self-love. Well, how exactly do I love myself? Now that I come to think of it, I've not exactly got a feeling of fondness or affection for myself, and I do not even always enjoy my own society. So apparently, love your neighbor does not mean feel fond of him or find him attractive. I ought to have seen that before because, of course, you cannot feel fond of a person by trying. Do I think well of myself, think myself a nice chap? Well, I'm afraid I sometimes do. And those are no doubt my worst moments. But that is not why I love myself. In fact, it is the other way around. My self-love makes me think myself nice, but thinking myself nice is not why I love myself. So loving my enemies does not apparently mean thinking them nice either. This is an enormous relief. For a good many people imagine that forgiving your enemies means making out that they are not such bad fellows after all, when it is quite plain that they are. Go a step further. In my most clear-sighted moments, not only do I not think myself a nice man, but I know that I am a very nasty one. I can look at something I've done with horror and loathing. So apparently I'm allowed to loathe and hate some of the things my enemies do. Now that I come to think of it, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man. Or as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. For a long time, I used to think this is a silly straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed or whatever else fell in the blank, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated those things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid. But it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves, being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping, if it is any way possible, that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. And just as an aside here, Lewis practiced what he preached. He prayed daily during the war for Hitler and Goebbels and 
all of those Nazis, praying that they would see the error of their ways and that they would be drawn to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Lewis certainly deplored what they did, but he wanted them to come to Christ. He was not holding their sin to hate the people, but he was hoping that that distressful disguise of sin over their image of God that was innate in them could be done with, away with and that Christ would draw them to himself. So Lewis says the real test is this. Suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not be quite true or not quite so bad as it was made out. Well, we certainly don't have any experience of that these days, do we? <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, is one's first feeling, thank God even they aren't quite so bad as that? Or is it a feeling of disappointment and even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies as bad as possible? If it is the second, that it is, I am afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish that black was a little blacker. If we give that wish its head, later on we shall wish to see gray as black, and then to see white itself as black. Finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, God and our friends and ourselves included, as bad and not be able to stop doing it. We shall be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. And I just have to stop here for a moment and say, I believe we are seeing a lot of this unfold before our very eyes. We have let go of the scriptural injunction in 1 Corinthians 13 that says, love believes the best, love hopes all things. And we have moved instead to an position where we assume the worst, we believe the worst, and we believe that it's true and that those people, whoever they are, regardless of which camp you're in, those people are evil. And that is exactly playing into Satan's hands. So Lewis says, now a step further, does loving your enemy mean not punishing him? No. For loving ought not to mean that I ought not to subject myself to punishment, even to death. If one had committed a crime, the right Christian thing to do would be to give yourself up to the police and be hanged. It is therefore perfectly right for a Christian judge to sentence a man to death or a Christian soldier to kill an enemy. I have thought so ever since I became a Christian and long before the war, and I still so think so now that we are at peace. It is no good quoting, this obviously is written when he revised this for the book. It's no good quoting, thou shalt not kill. There are two Greek words, the ordinary word to kill and the word to murder. And when Christ quotes that commandment, he uses the murder one in all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I am told there's the same distinction in Hebrew. All killing is not murder any more than all sexual intercourse is adultery. When soldiers came to St. John the Baptist asking what to do, he never remotely suggested they ought to leave the army, nor did Christ when he met a Roman sergeant major, what they called a centurion. The idea of the knight, the Christian in arms for the defense of a good cause, 
is one of the great Christian ideas. War is a dreadful thing, and I can respect an honest pacifist, though I think he's entirely mistaken. What I cannot understand is this sort of semi-pacifism you get nowadays, which gives people the idea that though you have to fight, you ought to do it with a long face and as if you were ashamed of it. It is that feeling that robs a lot of magnificent young Christians and the services of something they have a right to, something which is the natural accompaniment of courage, a kind of gaiety and wholeheartedness. I've often thought to myself it would have, how it would have been if when I served in the First World War, I and some young German had killed each other simultaneously and found ourselves together a moment after death. I cannot imagine that either of us would have felt any resentment or even any embarrassment. I think we might have laughed over it. I imagine somebody will say, well, well, if one is allowed to condemn the enemy's acts and punish him and kill him, what difference is left between Christian morality and the ordinary view? All the difference in the world. Remember, we Christians think man lives forever. Therefore, what really matters is those little marks or twists on the central inside part of the soul, which are going to turn it in the long run into a heavenly or hellish creature. We may kill if necessary, but we must not hate and enjoy hating. We may punish if necessary, but we must not enjoy it. In other words, something inside us, the feeling of resentment, the feeling that one wants to get one's own back must simply be killed. Lewis then goes on to talk about resentment. I do not mean that anyone can decide this moment that he will never feel resentment anymore. That is not how things happen. I mean that every time it bobs its head up, day after day, year after year, all our lives long, we must hit it on the head. It is hard work, but the attempt is not impossible. Even when we, uh, and I can't see that because it's blank on my screen, when we punish, we must try to feel about the enemy as we feel about ourselves. To wish he were not that way, to wish that he may in this world or another be cured, in fact, to wish is good. This is what is meant in the scriptures by loving him, wishing him his good, not feeling fond of him or saying he's nice when he's not. I admit this means loving people who have nothing lovable about them. But then, has oneself anything lovable about it? You love it simply because it is yourself. God intends us to love all selves in the same way and for the same reason. But he has given us the sum ready worked out on our case to show us how it works. We have then to go on and apply the rule to all the other selves. Perhaps it makes it easier if we remember that that is how he loves us, not for any nice, attractive qualities we think we have, but just because we are the things called selves. For really, there's nothing else in us to love. Creatures like us who actually find hatred such a pleasure that to give it up is like giving up beer or tobacco. And part of what Lewis is saying here is that we need to love the way God does, which is of course what Jesus commands us as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. And God's love is expressed in that beautiful scripture verse, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He laid down his life for us 
while we were yet sinners, not because we were good, but because he had chosen to set his love on us to seek our salvation, to seek our good. Now, I think one of the best examples uh, that illustrates what Lewis is talking about here comes from another book of his that is called The Great Divorce. And I would highly recommend this book. Um, in the book, Lewis has a an interesting idea. The idea, it's a fantasy, what he calls a supposal about heaven and hell. And he has the idea that there are all of these ghosts who are in hell. And there is offered one day a bus tour where the ghosts can go up to heaven. And when they get there, um, they will be met by people who are in heaven whom they knew in their previous life. And it may be possible for them to come into heaven, although he doesn't quite put it that way. So anyway, all of these ghosts go up to heaven on this bus ride. And when they, when they get there, um, they are met by different people they know. And this is one of the vignettes. So this solid person, one of the bright spirits, shining and glowing and beautiful, comes walking up as the people get off the bus and says to this one ghost, don't you know me? He shouted to the ghost, and I, I is the narrator here, I found it impossible not to turn and attend. The spirit, he was one of those that wore a robe, made me want to dance. It was so jocund, so established in his youthfulness. Well, I'm damned, said the ghost. I wouldn't have believed it. It's a fair knockout. It isn't right, Lynn, you know. What about poor Jack, eh? You look pretty pleased with yourself. But what I say is what about poor Jack? He is here, said the spirit. You will meet him soon if you stay. But you murdered him. Oh, of course I did. It's all right now. All right, is it? All right for you, you mean. But what about the poor chap himself laying cold and dead? The spirit said, but he isn't. I've told you, you'll meet him soon. He sent you his love. What I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for, as pleased as punch, you a bloody murderer, while I've been walking down the streets down there and living a place like a pigsty all these years. The spirit said, that is a little hard to understand at first, but it's over now. You'll be pleased about it presently. Till then, there's no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? The spirit said, no, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I have given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what did it for me. And that was how everything began. Personally, said the big ghost, with an emphasis which contradicted the ordinary meaning of the word, personally, I'd have thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. The spirit said, it would be much better not to go on about that now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was, see? I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me, and I'm only a poor man, but I got to have my rights, same as you, see? The spirit said, oh no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. 
That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best and I never done nothing wrong. And I, I want to know is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be. Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for any bleeding charity. Then do at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. And this is just a little excerpt from this, but I think it shows so brilliantly the way most of us think. We sort of have this idea that going to heaven is based on kind of what we do here and how good we are and if we're better than other people. And so this ghost is horrified to find that he's in hell while a murderer that used to work for him is in heaven. And the spirit in heaven is trying to explain to him, it's not about that. It's not about what you did. And he says this, when I gave myself up, that whole thing that Jesus talks about, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake in the gospels will find it. And I love the way that Lewis um, talks about this guy just standing on his rights. I want my rights. And the spirit says, oh no, you really don't want your rights because if you get what you deserve, we're all in serious, serious trouble. And so uh, the guy then goes on to say, I haven't got my rights. I always done my best. I never done anything wrong. Wow, that's a pretty brazen statement. I never done anything wrong. But there are a lot of people in our culture that think that, that think there's no such thing as sin, that they've never done anything wrong and they are the personal definition of righteousness. And so the guy who's the ghost gets mad and he says, I only want my rights. I'm not asking for bleeding charity. And then of course the spirit says, ask for the bleeding charity, um, which of course is Jesus on the cross to ask for that blood shed out of love on the cross for all mankind and that all you have to do is ask, you can't buy it. And Lewis then goes on in a different book in the Screwtape Letters to put it this way. We must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance and resentment. And then a little later, Everyone wishes everyone else's discrediting, demotion, and ruin. Cancel culture, anyone? Everyone is an expert in the confidential stab in the back. Over all this, their good manners, their expressions of grave respect, their tributes to one another's invaluable services form a thin crust. Every now and then it gets punctured and the scalding lava of their hatred spurts out. I think this is so unbelievably relevant right now. And it's something that we as the church need to hear because there are so many people consumed with the idea of self-righteousness and so consumed with hatred. And the problem is that as the church, we are tempted so often to respond in kind, to hate those people, to think that they are the whole problem. Those people are the problem. If they would just go away, 
then everything would be like it used to be and we could be happy. But that is not what Christ calls us to do. What Christ calls us to do is to live out the radical forgiveness that's shown in Jesus Christ. And it is interesting in terms of implications when you look at Jesus's ministry to see how much time he spends talking about forgiveness. There are so many parables about forgiveness. And remember the setup for the one about the unmerciful servant when Peter trying to get a gold star says, how many times must I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? And Peter is hoping, you know, you can just see it. It's like the student who thinks he's got the right answer. Like me, me, me. Peter is thinking Jesus is gonna say, oh, seven is the number of completion. You are so wonderful for being willing to do that seven times. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven, which doesn't mean 490, uh, that you count 490 and then no more forgiveness. It's an expression that you never stop forgiving. And then he tells the story of the unmerciful servant, uh, this one who owes literally hundreds of millions of dollars that could never be repaid. And he is forgiven by his master. And then he sees someone who owes him a day's wages and beats that person up to get it out of him. And Jesus says at the end of that, that the unmerciful servant is gonna be thrown in jail and tortured until he pays the last penny. And then he concludes that parable with these chilling words, and that is how my heavenly father will treat each one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Ouch. Well, then right in the middle of the Lord's prayer, Jesus says, forgive us our trespasses. That is, God, please forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That is an incredible thing to find in the middle of the Lord's prayer. And then we see Jesus's example. Jesus nailed to the cross the most heinous thing that has ever been done in the history of the world. And Jesus looking down on the ones who have nailed him to the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If we think we deserve to be able to hold on to resentments against other people, we need to get a clue. Jesus is showing us in all of these things that his forgiveness and what he calls his followers to is radical. And this is the whole power of Christianity and the whole reason love your enemies is such a remarkable um, scripture. He tells us, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And part of the reason that this is so radical is that it is exactly the opposite of our human inclinations and is exactly the opposite of what we see being lived out in front of us in our culture each day. And when you love your enemies, when you pray for those who persecute you, um, the world stands up and notices. We saw that after the Mother Emanuel shootings with the beautiful examples of forgiveness from those victims' families. We saw it with the Amish when that gunman came in and killed the children there. We've seen so many examples where the world takes notice when this radical forgiveness shows up. And we forget about the corrupting power 
of hatred and bitterness that is talked about in the scriptures, why the scriptures tell us to let no root of bitterness spring up and that power of hatred and bitterness um, that led in this quotation attributed to Nelson Mandela, where he said, resentment or unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. And it is so sad as we look around our world and our culture today to see how much resentment there is, how much choosing to blame other people and to hold on to resentment and to let that resentment become the defining factor of your identity. And all it does is what Mandela says, it's like drinking poison and then vainly hoping it will kill your enemies. So there is much that is relevant here tonight. Um, let's close with uh, this passage, which again is very relevant to this particular topic of forgiveness. Let's say this together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown out. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great wisdom from your word that is contained in this chapter about forgiveness. Lord, we confess to you how challenged we are by what Jesus says about how you call us to be people of radical forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to begin to understand this, even if it means starting with small things to forgive, but Lord, beginning to try to develop um, a whole attitude of heart that is characterized by forgiveness rather than grudges and resentment and hatred. Lord, help us to be people that love as Jesus did, that the world might come within the reach of your saving embrace. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.